Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Policy Dispatch. I'm your host, Sam Morgan. Now, countries and regions around the world have announced long-term climate policies that aim to drag emissions down to a net zero level by certain dates. That involves reducing greenhouse gas output massively and ramping up zero carbon alternatives. But to make the net zero maths work, CO2 will also have to be removed from the atmosphere to keep average warming temperatures below 1.5 or even 2 degrees. Realistically, emissions are not going to be completely avoided in agriculture and other tricky sectors. Plus, there is the significant issue of CO2 that has already been emitted and needs to be removed. So, today we're going to be talking about a process called carbon dioxide removals, or CDR. Climate science is now of the opinion that CDR policies will have to be used to permanently remove and store CO2 at scale. The options include natural remedies like carbon sinks and reforestation policies, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, and nascent technology like direct air capture, which literally sucks CO2 out of the air. Now, before I introduce today's expert guest, who is going to be helping me dig into the finer details of CDR, here's this episode's quiz question. According to the International Energy Agency's Net Zero by 2050 modelling, direct air capture will have to trap 60 megatons of CO2 every year by 2030 to help wrangle emissions. But as of 2022, how much CO2 are the direct air capture projects already up and running, drawing down from the atmosphere? Is it A, 0.01 megatons, B, 0.1 megatons, or C, 1 megaton? Answer at the end of the show. So joining me today is Mark Preston from Bologna, a foundation that focuses on solving some of the most complex climate challenges Uh, Mark works on zero emission mobility and, more importantly for today's discussion, negative emission policymaking. So, Mark, uh, thank you so much for joining us. You're our fifth guest on the Policy Dispatch. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Very much looking forward to this chat. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, we. um, I guess I'd start with a pretty simple question that maybe has more of a complex answer. Um, What is... Carbon removal removals. It's the you know this the issue that we're looking at with this episode. Um, I'm certainly guilty of um, perhaps conflating it with um, other um, policies and technologies and everything. So maybe you could just give us a brief intro to what um, carbon removals actually are, and more importantly, what they are not. So great question, especially that second bit. It's the the foundational question of, of carbon removal. Um, well, basically, what it is is in a sense, the opposite of an emission. Um, so it's really sort of taking CO2 that is already in the atmosphere and putting it somewhere else for as long as possible. Um, the way we try to, f- well, the way we've been thinking about it, uh, there was this great paper in 2018 and 19 um, that asked the question, when are negative emissions negative emissions? Um, and in that paper sort of outlined many of the ways people get things wrong. So conflating carbon capture and storage, carbon capture and utilization, avoided emissions, not looking at the full picture, all the various ways in which negative emissions can get can sort of be interpreted in the wrong way mm-hmm. or badly defined. 
and basically put forward four principles. The first of which is CO2 has to come from the atmosphere. The second is you have to store that CO2 ideally permanently. Um, third is that you need to incorporate, include all of the emissions associated with the fact that you're removing CO2 from the atmosphere mm-hmm. uh, into the emission balance. And then the final one is that at the end of all of these steps, you have to remove more CO2 than you've emitted greenhouse gases in the process of doing so, mm-hmm. um, which is actually quite difficult once you put it all together. Mm-hmm. And so where does this, um, where do carbon removals feature in terms of things like climate policy and, and climate modeling? I mean, what role do, do bodies like the IPCC and wider scientific community envisage for carbon removals? Is it something that um, would be you know, great if we could do it, but it's not feasible? Or, or is it really featuring um, quite heavily in, in conversations, debates and policies? It's a very interesting question. It's, a, it's sort of CDL, um, carbon dioxide removal, I'll, I'll use the acronym CDR from now if that's okay. Um, mm-hmm. It's sort of been sneaking through um, in, in the climate modeling. Um, it sort of only really started appearing in the sort of AR4, so the, fifth, the fourth assessment report of the IPCC, mm-hmm. um, where we really started seeing some elements of what they called BECS, bioenergy and carbon capture and storage, um, which is a way to produce energy and take CO2 out of the atmosphere at the same time. Um, and that was found to be quite a sort of cost-optimal way of dealing with climate change um, and energy at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and back then, it was still quite a minor part of the, of the discussion. It was only sort of alluded to. And then in, in the fifth assessment report that came out about five years later, um, suddenly Bex played a, a much larger role. Um, and there were some, some of the scenarios that, you know, there was a headline statement that the amount of Bex that is required in some of the AR6, sorry, AR5 scenarios um, expect a landmass the size of India just to supply these, you know, these bioenergy and CCS um, plants, mm-hmm. which is obviously quite an insane number. Um, but I think the fundamental thing it represents basically is that we haven't been cutting our emissions by nearly as much as we should have, mm-hmm. um, which means that you know because we haven't been reducing our emissions, the models are having to find often quite creative ways to make up for that gap. Um, and bio CCS uh, or Bex, you know the 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 larger and larger role that is given to it, and and other carbon dioxide removal approaches at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more a sort of symbol of how much we haven't been reducing emissions rather than anything else, really. Um, it doesn't mean that it's, it's not, I mean, it, it's very clearly um, a key issue that needs to be resolved in terms of we need to be deploying large amounts of carbon dioxide removal. But I think in the modeling, um, it's often understood almost at face value. Um, so, you know, the range that's given in terms of how much we might need often ranges from 100 gigatons to 1,000 gigatons by the end of the century. Um, And those numbers are often taken at face value, even though really they represent more of a failure to reduce emissions more than anything else Mm -hmm. in the knowledge that carbon dioxide removal, as I pointed in the definitions earlier, um, it's quite difficult to do that knowing all of the sort of inputs that are required to simply take CO2 out of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we look at the economy today, it's mostly... The CO2 is a waste of other activities which are economically productive. And here we're talking about completely shifting the economy so that suddenly 
what is economically productive is taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. It's quite a, a step change in the mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's much harder than, than it's generally sort of assumed to be to take CO2 out of the atmosphere permanently. Mm-hmm. Um, so the IPCC modeling that's based on cost optimization, try to make sure that we meet our climate targets in the in the most optimal way in terms of costs. And they really like these approaches that can generate energy and take CO2 out of the atmosphere at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, it sometimes takes an outplaced role. Um, and I think we need to be very cautious in that and to, you know, in a way, start um, ex- not necessarily excluding, but really reconsidering some of these models that have very, very large expectations for negative emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, we should start sort of, I guess, focusing more on those that have sort of smaller numbers that are, that are easier to handle uh, in a first instance, because this sort of, you know, going back to what I said at the beginning, that, you know, carbon dioxide removal is effectively the opposite of an emission in, in a crude sense. Mm-hmm. Um, that means that, you know, if suddenly we find out we can't reduce, we can't remove as much CO2 as we expected, then that means however much we've reduced our emissions to, to sort of achieve a balance between emissions and removals, if we can't meet the removals sort of expectation, then in all likelihood we'll have probably cut our emissions by less than we should have. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important that we almost discuss these things in separate ways. So that on the one hand, we make sure we do reduce our emissions to you know, the, the fastest and largest extent possible. Um, and at the same time, we try and do the same with CDR. We try to deploy it to as, as, as much as we can in a sustainable way, knowing that we have these double objectives of reducing emissions and increasing removals. Mm-hmm. So CDR really is more of a, a complement to you know, reductions rather than a crutch that can be relied upon to, to do the job for policymakers and, and regulators, and, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really um, one of the many tools that we need to use in in sort of addressing climate change, um, and because it's sort of as I said, it's this it's seen as this balancing of emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's often given a bit of an outsized role, mm-hmm. um, and we need to be yeah quite conscious that it is it it does definitely have a role, but we need to make sure that it has that how it's used is um, coherent with our other climate goals that we do manage to actually reduce our emissions so that we can manage to balance out all of those emissions that we, for some reason, cannot fully get rid of. I mean, the, the point you made about, um, you know, retooling the economy so it is, you know, financially advantageous to actually remove CO2 from the atmosphere in, in a, a way that is set by the criteria that you said I mean, I guess the whole, the European Union's big sort of shtick over the last few decades is that emissions have been falling, but they have been decoupled from, you know, economic growth and, and, and all these kind of things. Um, what is, how, where is the EU standing on, on CDR? Um, they've been talking about it quite a lot recently. Um, has there been a turning point that sort of catapulted it up the agenda at all? Um, when we're considering their big climate targets for the end of this decade and, and also 2050 climate neutrality, which I, you know, I guess goes hand in hand with what we're talking about today. Um, where does it all fit into the, to the EU's thinking at the moment? Well, I, I think the turning point was the publication of the IPCC's special report on 1.5 degrees, which came out um, in the autumn of 2019, I think. Um, and in that report, 
the role of negative emissions or CDR was was significant, um, and I think that was a bit of a wake up call. Um, basically, we efforts to reduce emissions had fallen so far short that the role for negative emissions to sort of plug that gap had simply sort of grown so much in size that suddenly it became an urgent question of, well, we need to really look at negative emissions and what it actually means in terms of policy. Until that point, it had remained still quite a academic discussion. Um, and in those contexts, you know, negative emissions was understood as, you know, this sort of permanent removal of CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, and as it's sort of been going into EU discussions, there's been a bit more conflation and confusion, uh, which I guess is, is only natural. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, going to how the EU has been looking at this, I think they've, you know, they, they set this 2050 climate neutrality goal. Um, but one, one key point there, uh, which relates to, to CDR and negative emissions, is the fact that the climate neutrality by 2050 goal is, uh, addresses all greenhouse gases, which means that by 2050, we'll actually need to be net negative CO2 already just so that we can balance out the residuals of the, the leftover other greenhouse gases that we don't necessarily know to handle yet. Um, yeah, that's your methanes and, and everything else like this, I guess. And, yeah. Exactly. And two others. Yeah. Um, all of those other greenhouse gases that we can't necessarily fully eliminate, um, we already need to have sort of equivalent quantities of um, CO2 removal from the atmosphere. Uh, just for those. And that means that in all likelihood, we'll already need to be net zero CO2 before 2050. Um, mm -hmm. And that's you know, just at the EU sort of continental level. If we break that down into member states, um, we know that there are some member states that are more ambitious and others that are perhaps sort of climate laggards. Um, mm -hmm. And even within the EU, there's going to have to be this sort of balancing act between those countries that are going to be net negative before twenty, before twenty fifty or twenty forty five or whenever we would be net zero CO two, so that other countries can be can be net zero a little bit later. So there's a whole bunch of these questions that sort of come up uh, as soon as we implement or as soon as we start talking about this in policy, um, and the climate neutrality twenty fifty target uh, is really only the starting point of those discussions. Mm -hmm. Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you and maybe your colleagues as well that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try our subscription for 30 days for just 29 euros. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Follow the link in the show notes. Now back to the show. It all gets all goes back to, to sort of high school mathematics in a way. Everything has to balance. <laughs> the equation has to be, uh, you know, all the same on one side and on the other. I mean, the, the point you make about you know with the EU, this union of twenty seven countries, and, and some will get there a lot earlier. Some will be like you say laggards. Um, I mean, in terms of sort of the the, the meat of the policy um, at the moment, our carbon sinks are sort of the the biggest um, tool that countries will be using to, to make sure that they are sucking down enough CO2 from the atmosphere, presumably, or are there other um, 
means that they will be using to to achieve this as well from you know from what you see it's funny you mentioned about the the high school arithmetic um i gave a presentation a couple of weeks ago <laughs> where my final slide was one minus one equals zero um as a way to represent net zero <laughs> um simply because there is still a bit of confusion that sometimes people confuse reducing emissions as being the same as taking co2 out of the atmosphere um and assume that you can offset an emission with a non-emission when uh, that's not really the case. But yeah, so it's funny you should uh, mention the, the high school arithmetic. It's simple, but also complex at the same time. <laughs> um, sorry, what was your question? Um, um, the, the, yeah, I mean, the, the point was, um, you know, the, the way that countries are actually going about um, doing CDR at the moment. Is it purely carbon sinks or, or are there other you know, policies and means that they are using to deploy that at the moment? Yeah, so there was a really good uh, report that came out um, earlier in September by Ecologic, where they did sort of an assessment of each member state and how they're looking at carbon dioxide removal. Mm-hmm. There's still uh, this conflation that, that we've been talking about. Um, it's still very present in, in the member state sort of plans, long-term plans. And obviously, a lot of countries rely on their land sink because that's already been regulated, um, or at least sort of, you know, it's already been part of EU climate policy, even at the member state level, for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's obviously where a lot of the focus has gone. Um, but there's this understanding that we need to be doing more than just that and removing in other ways. Um, so some countries have already established sort of separate targets that they want to meet for negative emissions. Um, and so others are sort of acknowledging the fact that they will need to do more negative emissions, but aren't even clear on what it means yet. And there's a lot of conflation. Some countries saying that they need to be, that, that CCS or CCU uh, will be, so that's carbon capture and storage or carbon capture and utilization, mm-hmm. uh, that they will be part of um, their sort of CDR plans. And that, of course, is not is not right because uh, you can only reduce emissions with with CCS and with CCU. You tend to catch the catch the CO two and from a from a fossil stream and then release it back into the atmosphere at a later stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so neither of those are, are carbon dioxide removal. So there's still a lot of work to be done to get member states um, on the same page in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that that's you know the, the the certification mechanism that the European Commission is working on. I'm hoping that um, that will go a long way towards getting member states to understand what CDR is, um, how how it works, how they might be able to start deploying it at the national level. That's a that's a great segue onto my next question. Actually, the the idea of the certification that the the European Commission is supposed to um, publish by the end of this year. Um, I mean, I guess it all goes down to, you know, if a carbon removal doesn't come with the proper paperwork or isn't based on the right criteria, it won't be worth much. Um, this new system is supposed to come out soon. Um, what do you expect from it? Um, and why indeed is, is it important that they, they get this right? I mean, how can they slip up as well? It's always good to you know go over that before they actually publish it, because maybe they will be listening to this episode and will... Um, <laughs> will hear the the potential uh, pratfalls that they could uh, stumble into unless they think about it properly. You know, what what are you expecting from this um this new system? Well, there's been a lot of expectation placed on 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 this. Um, we are looking forward to a certification that, well, at least 
like a the beginnings of a certification. Um, at this point, I think the commission is is going to be proposing more or less sort of a framework for how we can uh, go about developing methodologies and then applying them. But it's going to be probably quite a slow process. Mm-hmm. What the certification really needs to achieve is um, it needs to set out a robust definition for what negative emissions actually means so that uh, we can quite clearly sort of not include all of the approaches which are definitely not CDR and that's you know that's quite easy to do so if you follow the four principles I mentioned earlier you know if you're capturing co2 from a from a mm-hmm. an industrial point source and that and that co2 uh, comes from you know, is a fossil origin then you can already disqualify that project. That's not going to be CDR. Um, if it's an industrial point source that has biogenic CO2, then, okay, that might be interesting. Are you actually permanently storing it? Okay, that's also interesting. Now let's go to the next step. Let's look if you're actually on a sort of um, system level. Are you actually removing more than you're emitting? Okay, you are. Great. Now let's see how much you're removing compared to how much you're emitting. And then we can start to certify these removals. And once we have... Um, a certificate that shows you know, a net amount of removal from the atmosphere, um, then we can start to, to look at incentivizing those removals on a per ton basis. Um, but we're still quite far from that. And you know, part of it is because mm-hmm. it's still quite a nascent um, industry in a way um, and, and sort of field, which is growing very quickly. Um, but a lot of these fundamental questions still haven't really been answered. So all of these issues of monitoring, reporting, and verification, which are really important when it comes to removals. Um, with emissions, you know, we're used to doing monitoring, reporting, verification for emissions, where you know you either emit the CO two or you don't, really, um, and that's sort of quite simple to look at. Once you've emitted the CO two, it sort of stays there for centuries, mm-hmm. basically until it's removed. But with um, with carbon dioxide removal. You, know, you t- need to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. And in many cases, it's, an, it's actually, you have to put effort into making sure it doesn't go back into the atmosphere. So the, the issue of monitoring becomes quite central um, to negative emissions. So mm-hmm. the certification framework will need to quite early on get those questions right. Um, and just simply make sure that projects that might qualify as carbon dioxide removal actually, you know, merit being in the discussion, um, which is unfortunately a bit more of an uphill battle than than, than one might expect. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been quite a few pushes for, I guess, sort of making the rules a little bit bendy, um, which I would say is not appropriate for, for carbon dioxide removal in the sense that its role is quite clearly defined in, in the IPCC um, and, you know, CO2 needs to be taken out and permanently stored and anything else tends to play around with carbon accounting. We could result in, in some kind of mechanism where if something is labeled as a carbon dioxide removal, um, it can be marketed as, a, as one ton removed, then that could completely shift the, the carbon accounting of the entire mm-hmm. sort of climate architecture. I guess you get into a, a situation where you're, it's a it's a false kind of impression then of of how good or how how poorly countries are actually performing in, in terms of the hitting their climate targets is is the big danger then I say exactly it'll be a bit like changing a one into a zero uh-huh. um, and then you know seeing the economy collapse. <laughs>
It all adds up. No. Great. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, the, like you say, that the, perhaps then the certification that's coming coming out probably this year will be a, a first step along this quite complex um, journey the EU is going to be on. I mean, Brussels always likes to think of itself as a rule maker rather than a rule taker. You know, do you see this as a golden opportunity for um, Europe to set some sort of gold standard that then other parts of the world can then adopt um, and make sure that, you know, that this this um, argument that, you know, a lot of people come up with, oh, you know, Europe only can, contributes a certain amount of emissions to the global um, total um, can sort of be dismissed in a way because then other big emitters will be hopefully following this this way of doing things as well without too many loopholes. Yeah, I mean, the argument about Europe being a small emitter today, um, I don't think it really adds up in the, you know, well, in general, just because um, if we look at cumulative emissions, which is really what matters in the context of, of uh, greenhouse gases, like CO2 that really sort of accumulate over centuries. Um, the EU is, is one of the larger, um, you know, has one of the largest shares of emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't really make sense to, to only look at how much we're emitting today. Um, but yeah, in terms of setting the standard, um, when the EU started working on, or at least when it announced that it was going to work on the on carbon removal certification, um, about three or four years ago, um, it was it was well, two or three years ago, I guess. Um, that was a time when the, the it, it, there was no policy discussion on CDR, and the EU really saw this opportunity to start developing such a, an, like an ability to measure um, to accurately measure how much CO two we're taking out of the atmosphere, which, as I said, is quite a fundamental question. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the context of you know, global climate policy uh, and the, the importance, you know, the, 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 the aim of net zero is laid out in the Paris Agreement as a balance between emissions and sinks um, and removals. Mm-hmm. Um, so the EU's role at this point seems to be much more about building a policy framework that we can trust um, that we can we can be sure that these projects are actually achieving their intended outcome, um, and that's something that other countries perhaps don't have the the ability to do, or the capacity, or the interest. So it's very it's it's key that the EU has decided to work on this in this way, mm-hmm. because it will make the job easier for other countries to be able to hopefully trust the EU system to a sufficient extent that they can more or less just subscribe to it, mm-hmm. um, although it can be transposed in some way. Um, so it is it is very important that the EU has decided to take this on, um, especially in this way, which sh- should hopefully be quite replicable. I guess, like you say as well, that as soon as you, as soon as you put this system in place and, it, and it's working well and you can tag incentives to the, the end of it as well, that becomes more of an attractive pro, you know, proposal for... Um, other regulators, other countries to, to then adopt it, I guess. I mean, in, in terms of other countries, the US, China, India, uh, you know, other big emitters, where do they stand on, on CDR at the moment? Are they far, as they as far along the, the sort of policy debate as the EU or, or are they a, a little less, you know, developed in that way? Where, where does the rest of the world kind of, you know, figure in at the moment? Well, the EU is definitely 
in a in a leading position. Um, I would say even at the at the beginning of this year, uh, the beginning of this year, the EU had already sort of announced that it was going to do the certification. There was a lot of interest. Um, the sort of carbon removal community was mostly geared towards what's going on in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and then the US came out with its uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of, I guess, shifted the balance a little bit where the US has suddenly decided to change the incentives to such an extent that now a lot of companies are now are looking at the US as the as, as the place to go for, for these types of projects, um, which in a sense is uh, it sort of makes sense. It's, it's, the US has a different approach to, to governance. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, yeah, I would say it's quite a complementary approach. Uh, the, the EU approach is probably more cautious um, and probably also, as I said, more, more replicable. Other, other geographies should be able to, to subscribe to the work that the EU is doing, whereas the US is taking a much more sort of innovation approach of really just trying to get this industry off the ground, if we can call it an industry yet. Mm -hmm. um, so it depends really what you mean by leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of, I guess, leadership of getting these technologies off the ground, the U.S. is, is mm -hmm. at this point quite far ahead, I'd say. Um, I mean, with the U.S., are, are they mostly, you know, throwing, throwing tax rebates, grants, incentives at, at people who are willing to, to put time and money into these kind of projects to, to get them off the ground? Or, or is it more of a, a technical support that they want to, to provide as well? Or is it just about the money? <laughs> So I haven't really been following the U.S. discussion that closely. Mm -hmm. um, my my understanding is really sort of a change in the incentives. Um, so it's now suddenly become interesting to at least try and do CDR projects there, mm -hmm. whereas before there just simply wasn't anywhere near the incentive to even consider it. Um, so we've seen quite a boom in um, in startups in the U.S. and obviously uh, wish them very well. But I think quite a few of them will, will, will fail simply because it's quite difficult to actually do CDR. Mm -hmm. um, but hopefully we'll get a few that survive and manage to do the job very well. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, as I said, the US taking a very different approach to the EU. Um, and you know, that's, compared to you know, India and China, um, I'm not aware of, of any significant efforts over there to, um, to to deploy carbon dioxide removal, mm -hmm. even though from a narrative standpoint, um, India has been quite important because uh, in, in the run up to COP twenty six, um, the, you know, the the leadership in India was saying that the US and other developed countries um, would have to reach net negative so that other countries can. I guess take a, not necessarily take that time, but so that they have a bit more leeway in, term, in, how, in terms of how they can reduce their own emissions. Right, mm. um, and that's quite an important narrative point in, in the in the general context of you know, global uh, temperature targets and national efforts to reach net zero. Um, now, I, had, I mentioned earlier about climate neutrality within the EU, uh, which will become a political question inside of the EU, um, but that's. You know, 
that's that's the again just the beginning because then we have to consider at a global perspective um, if the EU is climate climate neutral by 2050 and then aiming to be net negative thereafter, mm-hmm. um, how does that fit in in general in in, in global mitigation? Mm-hmm. Um, which again is going to be a political, or well, that's not even political at that point. That's really sort of geopolitical dip- diplomacy mm-hmm. uh, questions. I mean, you know, just to sort of tie tie everything off at the moment. I mean, in terms of milestones and things, we we already mentioned the certification um, proposal that the European Commission is supposed to to publish later this year. Um, are there any other big milestones that you could sort of point us to at the moment? You know, is it going to take some sort of declaration at a COP or even more warnings or, or modeling by the IPCC to really um, turbocharge CDR as an industry, if we can call it that? Um, or do you think it, it's sort of a ratcheting approach where it is, like you said earlier in, in the, you know, the episode, that there has been movement already towards um, even just having a debate about what to do with CDR? Or, or is there going to need to be another big realization moment, or, or something like that, in order for there to be um, progress? No, I, I think the realization moment has come. <laughs> um, the, so the the special report on one point five that was the sort of general awakening, which then led to some policy discussions in the EU and in the US, um, among others. And we can see in the in the private sector that was also definitely a wake up call. And we've seen a, a large growth uh, in 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 the private sector and interest in developing CDR. And so we've seen a bunch of um, a bunch of funding platforms and initiatives um, like the Frontier Fund or Next Gen CDR, among others. Mm-hmm. Pure Earth as well. Um, quite a few different approaches to try and get CDR off the ground, um, and. I think one concern that we have is it's a little bit of a wild west at the moment. Um, that's quite a common phrase in, in the in the in the field, um, and there's a bit of a different approach when it comes to, on the one hand, the private sector approaches of trying to get as much carbon dioxide removal for as cheap as possible, um, and you know. With, with varying levels of stringency on what is defined as carbon dioxide removal. And then on the other hand, there's a sort of political discussion that you know, is basically what we've been talking about here. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the key challenges is to make sure that in deploying CDR, we don't take our eye off the ball, which is you know, long-term. Our, our, our goal is to keep temperatures below... 1.5 degrees uh, or two degrees, you know, as, as low as possible, really. Um, and there is a risk that in spending so much money and energy and effort into CDR, we might, I guess, detract attention from some emission reductions that might otherwise have been done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from a policy level, I think the next of not necessarily wake up call, but the next big action that needs to happen is for mem- for countries to realize that when when they set a net zero target, that doesn't just mean they need to balance emissions. They need to balance their emission with their removal. That means they need to be much clearer in, about how much they need to remove their emissions by and how much they will be able to remove 
the, the by twenty by you know whatever their net zero date is. Mm-hmm. So we need to make sure that by their net zero date, they've basically ramped up uh, CDR to a sufficient extent that they can actually meet the net zero targets. And that's something that's still not really being fully understood. So I'd, I'd very much like um, some some sort of acknowledgement at the at the diplomatic level um, that there needs to be a, a more concrete discussion um, of how CDR features in national long-term strategies and in uh, you know in the EU that translates to the national energy and climate plans mm-hmm. there needs to be much more of an acknowledgement of you know, what is CDR and how is it featuring in my plan how am I reducing my emissions to make sure that I'll actually be able to reach net zero um, is that how much CDR am I expect is it is it likely I'll be able to deploy by that time. Um, and all these questions are, are, are vital uh, for the net zero discussion. Mm-hmm. And they're only really starting to emerge. So mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the next big step that needs to, that needs to happen, really. That's brilliant. Thank you, Mark. That's um, a lot of food for thought there, I think, about where exactly net zero policies, they, we, we hear more and more about them these days, whether they be from countries or, or companies, um, but they do have to be underpinned by um, some solid, um, like we said, arithmetic. And um, aside from the horrendous um, maths lessons flashbacks that I am now suffering from, it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you for being um, our fifth guest on the Policy Dispatch. Thank you very much. This was a, a great discussion. Thank you, Mark. The more you delve into climate and energy policies, the more you realise that it is largely rooted in accounting and making books balance. Uh, be that climate modelling that assumes certain costs for green policies, companies deciding which investments to make, or as today's episode has shown, uh, ensuring that emissions are actually reduced. Now, before I sign off today, uh, the answer to the quiz, how many megatons of CO2 is direct air capture sucking out of the atmosphere currently, according to the IEA, uh, compared with the 60 megatons needed by 2030? The answer, a rather paltry 0.01 megatons. Uh, So plenty of work needed there then. Now, for more in-depth stories on the energy transition, be sure to check out foresight.dk and, of course, look out for the older podcast sibling of the Policy Dispatch, What Matters. Thank you for listening into this, the fifth episode of this new podcast. We'll be back very soon for another dose of energy and climate discussion. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.